How many of you are really excited to see what God has in store for us? Absolutely. January 6th, 2019, welcome to the new year. How many of you are resolution type people? Just have to ask. Wow, that is incredibly underwhelming. <laughs> How many of you like to set goals in life? Let's put it that way. Okay, I, I will admit, if, if I had answered the question myself, I'm not a resolution person. I'm not. And um, it would be a bit cliche to stand up here on the first week of the new year and talk to you about how to set a great new resolution. You've all heard that message, right? But there is something that happens at the start of a new year that I think we can all take pause and look at. And that is, at the start of a new year, it is a good time to do some self-examination. It's a good time to look back and see what has worked. See what hasn't worked. To find out and, and, and recall the blessings of God that we've experienced and the challenges that we've faced. It's a good time to do that. And it is a good time to look forward and make plans. It's a good time to make goals. But I want to challenge you this morning with something a little different than your typical resolution. I want to talk to you about something that, as, as I was praying about this message, God kept bringing to my mind, and, and you will not find this word in Scripture. Some of you are already saying, ooh, what's, what's, what's going on here? But it's this, you won't find it in Scripture, you will find it in a physics book. Now some of you are really worried. How many of you like physics? Wow, raise your hand high and proud. That's, that's, that's a little more encouraging then. The word I kept hearing as I prepared for today was vector. How many of you know what a vector is? If you've, if you've been in math, if you've been in engineering, if you've dabbled in physics... If you took a high school physics course, you've heard the word vector. And if you look up at the slide, you see a whole bunch of arrows. That's what a vector is. A vector is an arrow. It's, there, there's a symbol. The symbol is an arrow that talks about a vector. There, there, there are some things that it represents. A vector represents something that has direction and magnitude. So I could say to you, I'm traveling down Highway 10 at 20 miles an hour. That's not a vector. I'm telling you my velocity, but if I say I'm traveling east at 20 miles an hour, now I have a vector because I have a direction and magnitude. Andy Stanley has a, a really good quote, and it, it's kind of funny because um, there are about, if you, if you look up this quote, you'll find about four different names um, attributed in some way, shape, or form to this quote, but I like Andy Stanley's because I like how he ends it. Everybody ends up somewhere in life. 
some people end up somewhere on purpose. These are the ones with vision. Every one of us is traveling through life, and our life could be represented at any given point by a vector. Where is our life pointing? What direction are we going? How fast are we getting there? Now, at the end of the day, some of you, especially those that don't like physics, are going to turn to each other and you you may say, now, what was that sermon about? And you're not going to remember, but maybe, maybe this will help. I'm applying for a new villain loan. Go by the name of Vector. It's a mathematical term, a quantity represented by an arrow with both direction and magnitude. Vector! That's me, because I'm committing crimes with both direction and magnitude. Oh, yeah! (laughs) Hey. Hopefully that will help you remember what a vector is. And, and I, I may not mention it a whole lot for the rest of the sermon, but keep that in mind. A vector has both direction and magnitude. Oh, yeah! Okay, now you'll remember. And so I, I began thinking about scriptures and, and, and where our life is pointing, and I kept coming back to this same story, and it's the story of Lot. And I'll admit, I heard a sermon many years ago about the story of Lot. And I remember thinking, even back then, it's the way my mind works, about vectors, about direction. And Lot is an interesting story because it's intermixed with this story of Abram, who becomes Abraham. And and we see the interaction between these two people and their lives and the completely different directions that their lives are taking over the course of several chapters in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 13, it says this, Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zoar was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Most of us would read this, and of course our minds instantly go to Lot as the key character in the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what we think about. And if I were to ask you right now, and I'm not going to because your answer may change by the end of the message, how many of you think Lot was a pretty good guy? Not many hands would go up. He's not a great example for us. And yet his life does show us some things that we can learn from. You see, the context of this is, is, uh, is an interesting backstory. Abram was in the land of Ur with his father, Terran, and Lot's father. That's over in the area of Babylon. Okay, so think Iraq. And Abram's father, Terran, was going to go to Canaan. The story says he was going to Canaan. Modern-day Israel. And Lot's father dies. 
So Lot goes with Abram and his father Tehran on their way to Canaan, but they don't get there. They stop on the way. They stop in a place called Haran, and there Abram's father passes away. So now you've got Abram and Lot, they're together, uncle and nephew. And it's kind of interesting because if we think about the culture of the day, we would know that Lot, as a nephew, probably had some right to his father's inheritance. And yet, because Abram was still the next of kin, if you will, he was there and in charge. So Lot was kind of the heir in waiting. And so Lot travels along, having lost his father, with Abram. And then we hear the call of Abram from God to go. And so in Genesis 12, God calls Abram to the land of Canaan. He says, leave the place of your father. A place where in Joshua we learn they were idol worshipers. Even Abram himself was called an idol worshiper. It's interesting. We don't often think about that. But God himself, God Most High, speaks to him and says, no, come to Canaan. Finish the journey. Your your vector, your direction has brought you this far, but now, go. Complete the journey. And Lot comes along. Now what happened is as they came to this place, a lot of things happened. And and I'm not going to read seven chapters of Genesis for you today, so I'm going to give you the cliff note version along the way here and highlight a few things. They arrive in Canaan. And they begin to prosper. Abram's flocks and his herdsmen and Lot's hawks and Lot's, uh, flocks and his herdsmen. And they, they grow in number. And they end up having to travel to Egypt because there's a great famine in the land. So they travel beyond Canaan, now down into Egypt. And they're there for a while because it's well watered, it's fertile. There's room for their flocks. And when the famine ends, they come back then to Canaan. And as their flocks continue to grow, and the people with them to continue uh, to grow, quarrel arises between Abram's people and Lot's people. And so Abram makes a statement to Lot, and he says, it's not good that we're fighting. Check one for Abram, okay? He recognizes it. So let's do this. Let's separate our flocks And I tell you what, you pick which way you want to go. If you say you'll go this way, then I'll go that. It's a very hospitable thing to do, don't you think? As the elder in the family. Now again, tradition would say, and we see it played out a couple more times in the story, tradition would say, Lot should have been very gracious at this point and deferred. Oh, no, Abram. You are my elder uncle. You choose. That would have been the appropriate thing to do. But what do we see? We see Lot hear this opportunity, and he stands up and he looks. And he sees the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar, the south side of the Dead Sea is where, is where we're looking. This is well-watered place. It, it's referred to as looking like the Garden of Eden in Egypt. And Lot is enticed. 
And he sets aside the tradition, the gracious response, and chooses for himself a direction. Now, it's very interesting because it says Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan. You notice he didn't say, hey, this is all well watered. You take this half of the cookie and I'll take that half of the cookie and we each get a little bit of the part with the chocolate in it. How many of you have ever done that? Have you seen kids do that? Got a big cookie and they're going to split it. What's the gracious thing to do? You break it and then you offer the bigger piece, right? But there's chocolate chips on both sides. At least you split it so that you get a little bit of both. Everyone gets it and he says, no. All that beautiful stuff there, I'll take that. But it goes on to say, as the two men parted company, Abraham, Abram lived in the land of Canaan, the less fertile, less wonderful side of this arrangement, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain. He's out in the countryside among these cities. And he pitched his tent near Sodom. Now think of that. In some translations, that word near is actually toward. Toward is what? It's a direction. Lot made a choice. In the midst of everything that's happening, he made a choice. There's a challenge and an opportunity. I love the way you talk about challenges and opportunities. Each and every one of us face challenges and we have opportunities. We have opportunities to make a choice. And Lot made his. And he pitched his tent near or toward Sodom. Verse 13 begins to foreshadow the outcome. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. You see, it wasn't some hidden secret. Sodom had a reputation. And they had been traveling in that area for a long time. They knew. Lot knew, and yet his eyes overcame what might be considered his better judgment. He chose his direction. What's interesting then is as we continue the story, something um, happens that, that we never see in the Bible, right? A battle. A bunch of kings up on this side have been in control. And a bunch of kings down here, led by the king of Sodom, decide that they're going to rebel. And so they go out and they fight, and guess what? Sodom loses. Sodom and the, the four other kings that are aligned with him, they lose this battle and they're taken off, including Lot and his family. So his direction has already had consequences. They've been overrun by this king, and I probably won't say it right, but Kerdelamor. And Abram hears about this and goes to the rescue. It says the four kings that had come seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and they went away. And they carried off Abram's nephew, Lot, and his possessions, 
since he was now living in Sodom. If we do the math here, it's been about nine to ten years. And what started out as toward or near Sodom is now in Sodom. The direction he pointed himself has continued on and he finds himself in Sodom. In Genesis 19, fast forwarding again, we see Lot now with Sodom on the brink of destruction. Two angels have arrived and we're going to look at the the in-between here a little bit on the Abram side of this story. But two angels come. And they're approaching the city of Sodom in the evening. And Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean much here today. But in that culture, that was a big deal. Because you see, the gates of the city, the gateway that Lot was sitting in, was a place where public discourse would take place. Where officials would come together. This was... The city hall, if you will, of the ancient city of Sodom. So here we find Lot, not just toward Sodom, not just in Sodom, but schmoozing it up with the leaders, the officials, the businessmen of Sodom. He's right in the mix of it. And of course, we know the outcome. We don't necessarily need to rehash everything that happens then. But can you see how his choice to point his life vector toward Sodom became in Sodom, became schmoozing it up, right in the heart of it, at the center of everything that was going wrong. And the city the next morning then as we know, it's destroyed. And now for the second time in less than 25 years, Lot loses everything. He had been taken captive, and now the city that he has befriended is destroyed. Save his wife and two daughters, who leave the city with him that morning, at the urgent request of those angels. And we know his wife doesn't make it. Lot made a choice. The voices that he was listening to were not those of God. Back to my earlier question. What does that say about Lot? Wasn't really a great example, was he? In fact, his decisions become a warning to us in many ways. And the the self-righteousness that we all have inside of us kind of rises up and says, well, that's what Lot had coming to him. And yet, no study of the life of Lot is complete without looking at what the Bible says about him later on. Now, here's the thing. This, this, I'm, I'm going to tell you up front, this is going to get under some of your skin. 
gets undermined. Because in 2 Peter, this guy Lot who has made so many bad decisions, who offers his own daughters to the mob in the city of Sodom, if you know the story, the one who ends up in a cave with his daughters, drunk, and conceiving children, this guy who just doesn't seem to have hardly any redeeming quality is referred to by Peter as righteous. Righteous. And so when you read this scripture, there's something in me at least that just kind of goes, oh, that doesn't feel right. Peter writes in chapter 2 of 2 Peter, if he condemned the cities of Sodom, God, condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, wait, what? See, now, we would be okay if, if we were able to say, well, Lot was just rescued because of Abraham. God was just doing a good thing because of, of his buddy Abraham, right? We can pass that off. That, that works pretty good. Or, you know, we, we try to rationalize it and say, well, you know, the story does say that as the angels approached, he went out to meet them and he, he extended the offer to come into his home, to which they, by happenstance, by tradition, said, no, it's okay, we'll just stay in the city square. You see how their gracious response happened? And then he insisted, no, come in. You see, Lot, Lot knew. That's, that's how we rationalize it. He knew what the city was about, and so he knew it would be dangerous for them to stay in the city uh, square. And so he insisted they come in. And so we can kind of get to that point of saying, ah, you know, maybe Lot was, was rescued because of that. Or maybe it's just because Abraham had bartered with God earlier. If you remember that story, story when, when the angels with the Lord, the two angels and the third person, the Lord himself, when they came to Abraham and told him of the impending destruction, Abraham said, would you destroy it for 50 people? And the Lord says, no, we, I will withhold my wrath for 50. And then he goes on and says, well, what about 45? And what about 30? And what about 20? What about 10? So he's having this argument back and forth with God. Would you withhold for 10? We think, okay, well, maybe, maybe this is just, you know, the kind of the extrapolation of that. And God's saying, well, there's one. I'm, I'm at least going to save Lot for his sake. And yet that doesn't line up with what Peter writes. He calls him a righteous man. This man whose vector in life has been totally at odds with God's plan, as far as we can tell, for this person. He calls him righteous. And we say, wow, maybe that was a slip. Except that he says, who is distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man, there it is again a second time, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul. Three times Peter uses the word righteous to describe Lot. So what's the deal? How on earth can Lot be considered righteous? Just doesn't make sense, does it? It's hard to wrap our head around it. 
Peter concludes his thought, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. That sounds kind of like what happened on the day Sodom was destroyed. The godly lot was plucked out. But it doesn't quite make sense, does it? You see, we, we, just, we just don't like it because we see that he walked by sight and not faith. We see that he hesitated when the angels told him to go and they literally had to drag him out of the city. But we also see that Lot was not at peace. If we go back to that, that scripture, it says, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul. So even though he found himself smack dab in the ongoings of this detestable city, there was something going on inside him. And in fact, we see evidence of it in his dialogue with the men outside his house trying to break in. He he says to them, don't do this wicked thing. Something somewhere deep inside him recognized the wickedness of their actions and knew it wasn't right. And Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words that he was tormented in his righteous soul. It's very possible for a good person to find themselves in a bad place. Let me say that again. It is very possible for a good person, a righteous person, to find themselves in a bad place. And thank God. Because at one time or another, Every one of us finds ourselves in a place where, where we have chosen, where we have made a decision that is pointing us away from God. And thank God in his mercy, he allows something else to happen. We're going to extend this physics analogy a little bit. Vectors can interact. When you shoot a bow and you're 100 yards away, that's a long shot. Do you aim directly at the target? No. You aim above the target, right? Why? Because there's another force acting upon that arrow. As soon as you release it, the force of the bow propels it forward. And the vector is slightly above horizontal. But there's also gravity. And gravity interacts and pulls that arrow down. The voices of sin in this world act like gravity on our decisions. And they interact and and our trajectory is adjusted. The direction is adjusted by the influences around us. It's possible for a good person 
to be in a bad place. If you say, well, that righteousness, it, you know, it, I, I don't quite understand how it fits into the New Testament. Do you remember the criminal on the cross next to Jesus? He had an eternal life-changing interaction with Jesus. And the force of the mercy of God through Christ on the cross changed his direction for eternity. And Jesus taught the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Do you remember this one? This is another one that just gets under my skin because everything in my human nature doesn't like it. Do you remember the story? The landowner goes out in the morning and and begins hiring people to work in the day and he says, for a day's labor, I'll give you a denarius. And then people come a little later in the day and, and he hires them. And then a little later in the day and finally at the end of the day, he goes out and he says, why aren't you working? He says, no one's hired us. And so he calls them into his field and says, go and work at the end of the day. And they only do an hour's worth of work. But what happens when they come to get paid, he goes in reverse order. And he pays the people at the end of the day the same as those who had come in the morning. It's not fair. If you've ever had a child in your home, you know those words. It's not fair. And you've probably said, life's not fair. Right? Have you ever had that response? Kids, how many of you have ever heard a parent say, life's not fair? I know mine are raising their hands. It's not fair. And yet, what does Jesus say? He says, why, in, in this parable, the, the, the landowner says, why are you so upset? Didn't you get what we had discussed? You got what I said I was going to give you. But it's not fair that the end of the day workers get the same. It's what our nature says. You see, Lot, even though he walked by sight, even though he hesitated, even though he was was tormented, even though he had no influence, think about this. He hadn't influenced the people of Sodom. He hadn't influenced his family. He was literally saved, yet so as by fire. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15 says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, Paul writing. And someone else is building on it, but each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, if their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light, it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. 
Do you think Paul was thinking of Sodom and Lot when he wrote that? You see, the only way any of this makes sense is for us to go back to that word righteousness. It's the only way. And we have to understand This is going to be quick. The flip side of the coin to this story is the story of Abram. In Genesis 12, Abram hears God, go from your country, your people, your father's household, the land I will show you, and we know this blessing, I will make you, this promise, this covenant that God makes. I will make you into a great nation, I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I'm going to bless you, and you are going to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. What did he do? He chose a direction to follow God's command, to be obedient The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted him, fast forward, look around from where you are to the north, south, to the east, west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring. You know what? Lot just took all the good stuff. But don't worry. I've got you covered. Look as far as you can see in every direction, which, by the way, would have included what Lot just chose. Think about that. I'm going to give that to you as an inheritance in in the future. That's going to be yours. I'm going to make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. That's a rhetorical statement. You can't count the dust. More than can be numbered. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land for I'm giving it to you So Abram went to live near the great Thebes of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tent in the middle of what God had promised. Not only is he choosing to obey and to go and do, but he does something. His actions show where his heart is. He builds an altar to the Lord. From the time he came up out of Ur and through Haran and left his father as he arrived he builds an altar I've got something up here and some of you probably thought well this is my Bible case it's not how many of you have ever heard of noise canceling headphones how many of you have ever had a good pair of noise canceling headphones these um These are probably, I'm kind of a techie guy, I like gadgets. These rank really, really high on my must-have for travel list. If you've never had a good pair, and I'm telling you, you can get get them with the earbuds, it's not the same. Bose, noise-canceling headphones. Have you seen this, this, only because they're not in the playoffs, it doesn't hurt quite as bad. Have you seen the commercials with, uh, with Aaron Rodgers? And he puts on his noise-canceling headphones. And I'm not going to because then I wouldn't be able to hear your responses. But he puts on his noise-canceling headphones and all the distractions around him begin to fade away. Have you seen that commercial? 
Maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's just on the NFL network. I don't know. There's this great commercial, except that it has Aaron Rodgers. And, and he puts on his noise-canceling headphones, and, and the referees and the, the jeering crowd of the opponent, they all go away, and, and all he sees at the end of this commercial is a girl in the stands, and he goes and gives her a ball, and it's, you know, it's really sweet. What do they do? Well, they cancel noise. That seems pretty obvious. But how do they do it? How do these work? Anybody know the premise of a good pair of noise-canceling headphones? Anybody? Okay, well, okay, I see a couple of them, eh, but I don't want to have to stand up and explain it, so I'll explain it for you. As sound comes in, there's a microphone, and the microphone in them hears the sound coming in. So think jet engine, Whoa, drone as you fly along. That sound comes in, the microphone picks up that sound and creates an opposite sound to match it. So that this sound is now matched with this sound. And what happens is as the sounds come through the speaker, they cancel each other out. Abram found a way as he chose his direction, as he obediently stepped out, to cancel all the same stuff that Lot was so distracted and drawn by. Somehow. What do you think the cancel was? I think it probably has something to do with that last sentence. He built an altar to the Lord. He set up a monument to remind him of what God had said, of what God had done, and what he promised he was going to do. So here's the twist. This is actually, this is an add-on I'm going to give you here. And then we're going to go to communion here in a minute. You see, part of the story, that, that, that part where the kings came down and took Sodom and the, the allied cities away and took the spoils, I had said that Abram went and rescued them. See, Abram and his buddies, four of them, not called kings, by the way, just good guys, went up with 318 men and defeated the four kings that had come down and had ruled for 13 years. And as he returned, having set free Lot and the people of the cities that he was a part of, he interacted with the king of Sodom. And it's kind of interesting because here's the deal. The king of Sodom, he himself was a spoil of war at this point. Abraham, by right of war, now owned the spoils that he had taken from the kings that had taken them. Does that make sense? And, and this king of Sodom, the one who is, is sitting over this city with this great reputation, says, I tell you what, just give me the people and you can keep the stuff. People who don't understand the truth, they will go anywhere. He has nothing to barter with. All the stuff is already Abraham's. And yet he makes this offer. I can imagine, again, this is me reading between the lines, 
the king of Sodom coming to Abraham and said, wow, you are such a great military leader. Way to go. You're, you're just an amazing guy. Please, oh, wonderful Abram, just, just give me my people back and you can have all the stuff. And by right, Abram could have just said, forget you, this is my stuff. I risked my life, my men's lives, to go and rescue you on behalf of my nephew. But what does Abram say? And this, this to me is, is what was ringing in Abram's ears as he listened to the voice of this king. Abram said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord. The Lord God, most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you. Not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. I'm not taking anything from you, king of Sodom. This reminds me of the story of Jesus coming out of the wilderness and being tempted. When Satan says to him, just worship me and I'll give you everything. Jesus doesn't accept it. Abram doesn't accept it. He's got the voice giving him clarity, that promise that God had given him. God has already promised him everything. Why would I need what this guy is offering to give me, which isn't even his to give? Why would I allow the opportunity for any glory to go to him when God deserves all the glory? Abram continues to show his direction. God gives him a vision, tells him not to be afraid. He's his shield, his reward. He asks the question, how will I have an inheritance? I don't have a child. And it continues on. And, and we know the story of Abram and Sarah. They're, they're 99 years old, Abram is, and, and without child, where am I going to have an heir, right? And God says, you will have an offspring. I'm, I'm going to give you your son, and we know that there's this whole subplot of Hagar and Ishmael. But finally, Sarah, as her name is changed, gives birth to Isaac and becomes the father of the Israelites. Right? They, the tribes come from there. But in Genesis 15, it says the word came to him, this man will not be your heir, a man in his company, not Lot, by the way. That's an interesting side note. Go look why that might be. But a son who is your own flesh and blood, he took him outside. He said, look up at the sky, count the stars. Again, too numerous to count. And he said, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord. And he credited it to him as righteousness. So now we take this word that's been applied to Lot that doesn't fit, and, and it's being applied to Abram where it does fit. And if we overlap the two, we see 
we see where the commonality is. There is something in believing in who God is that makes all the difference. You see, as we think about the vectors that influence us, the choices we make, the voices we hear that influence us one way or another, the noise that comes against us that would keep us from hearing the voice of God, belief ties us to that righteousness because it's nothing we can do. Lot is the perfect illustration of that. Righteousness cannot be earned. It is a gift of God that comes when we believe. God is faithful. Isaac comes. We see the obedience that Abram continues with the sacrifice. We know the story. And Paul writes in Galatians, so also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel. When did the gospel begin? It's kind of a trick question, but it's one we have to wrap our head around. When did the gospel begin? We just came through Christmas. The gospel begins at Christmas, right? Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you, so those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Abram shows us a better way than Lot. He's a better example to follow. Hebrews 5.9 says, Christ became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. We see that lived out and not lived out in this story. John Piper put it this way, the covenant of Abraham and the new covenant under which we live today are one covenant of grace. Because in both, gracious promises are made to sinners who receive them through faith. A faith which banks, now listen to this, a faith which banks so completely on the wisdom and power and love of God that it inevitably obeys His commands. When we believe As Piper says it, when we bank so completely on the wisdom and power and love of God, when every choice we make is guided by that, we will inevitably obey His command. See, if I were to put this back in the illustration of the vector 
the choices we make and the direction we're heading are always influenced by an arrow so big that we can't even comprehend it. One of my favorite times as a parent has been when my kids have come home and they've just learned about this idea of infinity. What's one times infinity? That's the way a kid would say it, right? What's two times infinity? What's an infinity times infinity, right? When we can so bank every decision, every choice, every place that we find ourselves so completely on the infinite direction and magnitude that God has in mind. There is nothing we do that, that, that can counteract that. There is no power greater. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. God called Abram, and he went. Jesus called his disciples, and they went. God calls us. Do we go? As the elders and ushers come forward for communion,